from University of Puget Sound, it's What We Do, a weekly podcast about the innovators, teachers, dreamers, and performers of Puget Sound, and the stories behind the work they do. Hello, and welcome back to What We Do. I'm Chuck Luce, the editor of Arches, the alumni magazine here at the University of Puget Sound. And with us today is our friend Rachel DeMotz, associate professor and director of the Environmental Policy and Decision-Making Program here at the college. Rachel's teaching and research interests lie in the environmental politics of sub-Saharan Africa. She has lived and worked in Botswana, Namibia, South Africa, and Mozambique. And in those places, she's been conducting research and cooperating with environmental and human rights organizations that focus on trying to make sure local residents benefit from parks and tourism. In 2013, she wrote a cover story for Arches about the problem of the expanding elephant population in Botswana and the conflicts that occur when a 12,000-pound animal wants to browse in your vegetable garden. Welcome, Professor. So, can we start with the elephants? Most of us, when we think of elephants, think of the gentle creatures we see down at Point Defiance, but elephants in the wild behave a little differently. I like to start off my lectures in class, or one of them, uh, with a very sweet and adorable picture of a tiny baby elephant because it, it, elici- it, you know, it generally elicits what I call the aww response. Right? Uh, people have a real affinity for elephants. They're intelligent. They have family structures. Uh, they're, of course, um, they're charismatic megafauna, which, of course, I also always joke with my students. If I ever had a band, I would call it charismatic megafauna. Um, but they are a really interesting uh, species, and this is a really important moment in a lot of respects for them. The poaching has increased a lot in the last you know, five to seven years. Uh, people are concerned about them. But usually the view that we get from here, uh, from Tacoma or from Seattle or from the U.S. in general, is a very one-dimensional view. It, it goes along the lines of how can anybody ever want to shoot an elephant? Uh, so safari hunting aside, which is a, a whole other um, right. set of debates as well. But they can be uh, they can be a real problem. They can be uh, the biggest pest of all, um, as some um, folks who study human elephant conflict have argued. And if you are a single mother in a small village in a rural area near a national park in Botswana or in Namibia or in South Africa or East Africa as well, for that matter, uh, and it's the dry season, and your crops are ripening. Um, that looks pretty tasty um, to elephants that might otherwise be a little bit challenged for fodder. So they can be very dangerous. Um, they can be very dangerous and really scary. So it's uh, often a lot more complicated than we might see. And, and, and when we talk about that complexity, elephant populations, despite the poaching, have been on the increase, not necessarily sustainably, but... There are more elephants, uh, and they need territory, so they're expanding outside the reserves for them. And this is especially the case in Botswana. So there are a lot of uh, areas in Africa where populations are on the decline, and in some cases, very serious decline, um, especially in East Africa, um, Tanzania in particular, Central Africa uh, as well. But Botswana is really quite exceptional in that the population seems to, at the very least, be stabilized um, and has increased pretty significantly over the last 20 or 30 years. There's a lot of debate about exactly how many there are. Um, 
there's uh, some recent research um, that's been um, conducted over the last, I think, two to three years called the Great Elephant Census, uh, which um, sought to count as many of them as possible in an aerial survey of across, I think, about 16 countries. And uh, Botswana's population is kind of the shining example. Uh, but, you know, Botswana is a country about the size of Texas that only has about 2 million people in it. And so if you say, well, there are somewhere between 150 and 250,000 elephants in Botswana at any given time, um, that seems like there might be enough space uh, for elephants and for people until you start thinking about things like water that everybody needs. Right, because a large portion of Botswana is... Kalahari Desert. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so there's a very high concentration of elephants in the northwestern part of the country in and around um, the Okavango Delta and the Moremi Game Reserve, as well as Chobe National Park, which I, I use my shorthand for that is if you've ever watched National Geographic and seen an elephant, you've probably seen one of those places. Uh, it's really um, one of the, the northern part of Botswana is really one of the most um, remarkable areas for biodiversity and especially for, for elephant populations. Before we talk more about the complexity, let's go back to more of the problem with the interface. Mm -hmm. uh, um, so sometimes there are problems with elephants in your garden. And, and we're not just talking for these people about a, a garden that you're going down and getting the lettuce every once, once a week or whatever. We're talking about a year's food. Uh, um, what, what, what other kind of, of, of problems do people face with elephants be, besides them invading property. Yeah, so this has been a, a really interesting and sort of um, unfolding um, set of studies and perspectives, especially I would say in maybe the last six or seven years. Uh, when we looked at elephant damage, we used to really just focus on crops, and there used to be a, a, a lot of literature that would just focus on measuring how much people lost and relative to how much they had, um, valuation processes, a number of governments uh, Botswana definitely does. Um, there are also programs in Namibia as well uh, that compensate people when they lose something. So there was a real focus on let's figure out how much you lost and let's see if we can then somehow compensate you for it. And, and this is kind of analogous to the wolf situation here. In that Absolutely. They're, 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 they're compensating <clears throat> to, to encourage people not to kill the elephant. Yeah so, yeah, so if you lose cattle and you can demonstrate that it was from a wolf, we'll compensate you. It's similar with elephants. If you lose crops and you call the... Department of Wildlife and National Parks in Botswana and they come and assess and they agree, then you'll you'll receive some compensation. That compensation is is almost never a replacement value, but it's kind of a token to sort of to acknowledge um, people's struggle. And this is one of those processes that I could talk about in great detail, and some of the data is uh, a little bit dense, but really essentially shows that people are often very frustrated with that system and often don't use it. And so um, kind of what gets into the compensation system doesn't really show us the magnitude of the problem. And so in recent years, we've started studying other sorts of effects as well. So it isn't just that people lose crops. It can also be, let's say, in an outlying area of a village where uh, there would be a family living. Um, kids might, for example, miss a lot of school because if walking out of their courtyard meant that they'd have to walk through a sort of <laughs> hanging around herd of elephants, they might just not go. Um, elephants also sometimes do things like break water pipes um, in areas, um, standpipes that um, people might use to, uh, to collect water. Because uh, often in areas like this, uh, running water isn't on a household basis. It's a, a standing pipe for a certain number of households in a given area. They might, uh, they might also 
um, break fences, those sorts of things. Um, you know, they obviously eat, eat fruit trees in the area. They might push over trees. Um, I've actually also had conversations with women who make crafts to sell to tourists who like to harvest palm leaves, who say, you know, the elephants often will eat and push over palm trees in these areas. So it makes it dangerous, first of all, for us to tr walk out and try to harvest. And also they like to push over some of the trees that we would use. So there's a really wide potential range of effects that are often uh, pretty invisible um, from the outside. And, and they're often maybe not often, you can correct me, but there are instances where people are physically harmed. Yes, there are. There definitely are. It doesn't happen that often, but people are, are occasionally injured uh, by elephants um, or, you know, mauled or trampled to death. Um, it, I guess it is pretty rare, but, but I've, you know, talked to a number of people who have either lived near someone who was killed or who um, had a family member who was killed, that sort of thing. And and I would say that, you know, that sort of traumatic event lasts for a, a really long time. It's something that really imprints itself on people's imaginations and fears. And, and uh, so when researchers, for example, come in from the outside and say, oh, you guys are exaggerating about how big this problem is, you know, it, it might be hard for someone from outside to understand, you know, how long the emotional impacts of losing your neighbor to an elephant might last uh, and what it's really like for you to have to stay up at night and burn fires and beat drums and use chili powder, for example, um, to try to keep elephants out of your fields. There's a lot of hidden labor and, and psychological and emotional costs that come with living that close to a threat that's that large, both literally and figuratively. So, so you, you started to talk about some of the deterrence. <clears throat> What kinds of things are available to people to, to help protect their property or their children? People are really creative, and they they learn what it is that elephants don't like, and they try to find uh, cheap and consistent ways to replicate it. So, for example, um, flashes of bright light, especially um, in the dark, uh, you know, in the evenings. Um, people will uh, take old CDs or old tin cans or soda cans and kind of cut them, open them up, and hang them on their fences. Um, cans also make noise that elephants don't necessarily like. Um, so people will sometimes have a flashlight and sort of uh, run it around the edge of, of the property if they have uh, various shiny things hanging on their fences. Um, elephants have been shown not to like um, chilies as well. They have very sensitive olfactory systems. And so people will soak rags and combinations of oil and chili powder and hang them on their fences and burn them. They also sometimes make what's called a chili bomb. Uh, and they mix elephant dung and water and dried chili, and they let it dry out, and then they put them around the edges of their property, and they light them on fire. And the, the smoke is quite painful to inhale, uh, as I would imagine it would be for humans as well. But that's the kind of thing you have to do it every night, and you have to hope the wind is blowing in the right direction, and you know you have to either grow enough chili or be able to buy enough chili to do it, those sorts of things. Um, people who can afford it, commercial farmers, for example, often have electric fences, um, which, you know, again, are, are often successful and sometimes not, you know, if there's an interruption in the supply of electricity or if it's a weak current, you know, uh, a large male might just push it over anyway, you know. So people are pretty creative. They make noise, you know, they, they burn things, they try to fortify as best they can. But all of these methods are both, uh, can be both expensive and really labor intensive. And you have to really be consistent because it only takes one night, you know, one gap at the wrong time uh, in order to, functionally, you could lose everything. 
I've I've seen these things in photographs that, that look like anti-tank installments. Um, is this something the government does to protect large areas? Um, you or know, there is a, a, no, you know what, I've seen uh, in some areas, in, in one area um, outside of Chicago, which is one of the sort of small towns at the far northern end of the Panhandle, there's a there's a water facility, and around that are strips of concrete that have actually what look like what look like little pyramids that then yes. have a piece of rebar sticking up out of them, and they're you know at least a couple of meters across, maybe three or four meters across, and it's just a flat in-ground boundary uh, that then has a fence on the other side of it, but elephants won't step on that, and so there is just a, there's a, it's a very simple low maintenance, um, and of course, expensive to actually put in. And, you know, certainly the average person isn't going to be able to afford to do that. But I've sometimes thought that if we could just, you know, get some, if we could just get trucks and go around and pick up rocks and chunks of broken concrete, for example, and kind of, and make on the ground barriers out of things that we know that they wouldn't step on, that were wide enough that they couldn't step over, that that might actually be a pretty effective deterrent. So in that example, um, the, you know, government and businesses in, in some areas have made a, have made barriers like that. Um, and they've also used, you know, you can use broken, like I think chunks of concrete, things like that as well, bricks, um, you know, whatever it is, anything sharp that would stick up. But that's also, you know, getting a hold of all of that and moving it around and keeping it in place, you know. Right. It's also all something that, you know, probably your average subsistence farmer would have a, a hard time locating. Um, now, when it, when it comes to conflict, sometimes burning chilies and your electric fences and whatever else you come up with, flashing CDs, uh, are ineffective. The elephant comes in and your livelihood is at stake. Um, so farmers then resort to yeah, sometimes people do put up snares, uh, for example, wire loops that they would uh, kind of essentially booby trap an area, you might hang them between a couple of trees, hoping that an elephant might step in it. Um, and then you would, you know, step in the loop and then as you pull, it would be connected to a tree and it would tighten around a, a leg or uh, in some cases an elephant's trunk um, as well. Um, some people who, and some people do shoot at them, they do shoot near them. They, uh, you know, not everyone, of course, not everyone, uh, actually has a gun in an area like this, and certainly not necessarily a gun that would kill an elephant. But it definitely does happen. Um, there are um, uh, uh, there are definitely incidents um, of that happening. The other thing that that people do. Um, also, it is actually in the case of, of people who, for example, would have fruit trees or small gardens, things like that, people also just stop planting. And so it, it, it really sort of kind of erases this livelihood strategy. So, uh, for example, uh, a lot of the, the female-headed households and a lot of the single women that I, that I worked with in, in and around Kasani, which is the main village and small town area close to Chobe National Park, people just stop planting things. They're like, I, I, I had a woman actually show me that she, she'd burned her vegetable garden because they kept coming to her house and she was afraid for her kids and she just didn't know what else to do. So she just stopped growing anything, essentially. So it also then makes it seem like, well, there's no problem here. Well, we don't have any claims for damage to anything. Well, it's because people aren't growing anything anymore. So, you know, the 
and even those, and I've interviewed, I've interviewed farmers who have shot at or who have shot and killed elephants as well. And, you know, to be honest, it's my experience that it's not something that they like doing. They don't want to do it. You know. Because the elephants are important to them because of the tourism. Yeah, they yeah. realize that, you know, that there's income. You know, they realize that, that this is wildlife that also occupies this area. Uh, but many times they feel like there isn't really any functional choice for them. Now, of course, you know, some people could farm in a different area. You know, if you're if you are consistently trying to farm in an area where you have you know, where your ability to put up a fence is also um, somewhat limited and it's, you know, you have a couple strings of wire between sticks, uh, that of course is not going to keep them out. So then there become the questions of, well, prevention and is there a role for the wildlife department to play? And maybe at the time of harvest season, maybe there could be wildlife patrols and that sort of thing. Um, you know, elephants are smart, right? I mean, they become habituated to humans as well. They they are they can be sneaky, just like people can, and and they really try to find their way around uh, whatever it is that's happening, whatever it is that's standing in their way. Um, but when they want to get to the river to drink, and the best place to put your farm is next to the river because that's where the water is at some level, uh, there's just there's just an ongoing tension there. We talked about how there was this disincentive to kill kill the elephants. They people feel an affinity for them, but there's also an economic reason for them not to. Yeah, absolutely. And and this is one of the interesting things that there's a lot of variation in as well. So in a, in an area like like Kasani or Kazungula, which is this small village area right outside of Kasani, this is the access point that people use for Chobe National Park. And Chobe National Park is is one of the one of the easiest places to see elephants left in the world. These herds are enormous. Uh, you know, I've never been in the park without seeing many elephants. They move back and forth from Botswana into Namibia and up into Zambia and Angola as well and across into Zimbabwe. And people have jobs in hotels and restaurants and, you know, and there are services and all sorts of things. There's a, you know, there are government agencies in town. So it's a, Kasani is a small town, but a lot of the people who live in the little village, village area right outside of town have jobs because of tourism. And so they recognize that there is a, a value there. But the further away you live from areas where there's tourism, you know, if you don't have a job in tourism and your your family does, no one in your family does and your neighbors don't, but you're living um, much further away in a more rural area that doesn't directly benefit, it's harder for you to see and understand those kinds of connections. Uh, you know, the, it becomes much more distant. The argument becomes, well, government benefits from tourism. There are taxes and things like that. And then government is able to provide social services. But, you know, it, it, it's like anyone else. The, the further away it gets, the harder it is to understand it experientially. And so there's also a question of sort of where the most ex sort of profound costs are really born. And in my experience, it, you know, the people who struggle the most are often the people who benefit the least. And there's a real, uh, there's a profound inequality uh, there. I mean, for me, even coming in from outside, even in areas that I've spent a lot of time in, you know, where I have friends, where I've lived, where I've worked for the university, uh, having those conversations with people is, is still really challenging because a lot of people see the benefits from tourism. They see the $75,000 Land Rover full of white tourists zipping by on the 
on the little two-lane road. They see the hotels in town, you know, or they work in them, you know, but they they feel often excluded from both the decision-making process around how that works and who it is that benefits from them. So uh, I think, unfortunately, you know, the farther away the benefits get from where the costs are borne, the more it has a tendency to inflame those inequalities rather than to help um, ameliorate them. Let's go back to the to elephant populations. So in, in some places, the population is seems to be sustaining itself. In others, it's still in decline, uh, mostly because of poaching. Um, how... Is is there a trend there that that is, is, is I mean is it is it remaining consistently the same? Uh, is there an increasing negative trend? Um, it's really hard to say a, 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 that there's a singular trend. I mean I I think that that what most of the surveys and and population assessments that that I'm aware of and and I'm not a population ecologist right I'm a social scientist and so I spend most of my time talking to people and and not uh, modeling population uh, boom and bust essentially um, but it's my understanding that you know that certainly on the whole um, in sub-saharan Africa the population has declined quite significantly in recent years uh, there was you know I mean a little just a little sort of historical snapshot, you know, when CITES, which is a convention on international trade and endangered species, banned the ivory trade in the late 1980s um, into the 90s, uh, this really did have a short-term pretty significant effect. And it's one of the reasons why population, for example, in Botswana was able to grow quickly. Um, also because Botswana's government nationally has a pretty solid commitment to conservation over a pretty extended period of time. But this varies somewhat wildly. And so what you see then um, after that is some success for a while. But then again, um, and the exact causes of this are <laughs> cause of much debate and argument, um, but certainly one of the prevailing explanations is as a middle class has grown in China, um, where ivory carvings and artwork have historically been uh, culturally significant, very popular, um, an important marker of a, a certain level of cultural status. Uh, that as that demand has increased, um, so has poaching. So the perception, for example, that the biggest poaching problem is is caused by farmers in rural areas um, who are defending their crops uh, would, I think, be completely inaccurate. Um, you know, poaching is often highly militarized, uh, you know, and is driven by outside interests and demands. And of, of course, when there are ex-combatants in places like Angola, you know, who might not otherwise have other work, uh, but would still have weapons and would have training. Um, certainly not only Angola, uh, many other places I've worked as well, uh, where um, former military members become game rangers, even in parks on the other side of the coin. Um, but this really presents a, a problem. We're talking about large areas of territory to cover. Um, porous borders that people are used to moving back and forth across, um, often with um, very little interference from government. And so it becomes a real um, point of difficulty. Who exactly is poaching? Where exactly is all of this stuff going? Um, who's really benefiting from this? And so, uh, again, it's just a, it's another level of, of international complexity. I think there's there's been a, a big cheer in the conservation community that's gone up as China has now agreed to ban ivory by the end of this year 
which is a huge step. They've been making kind of noise in that direction for a while and slowly trying to clamp down, but the immediate willingness to ban um, after the CITES convention late this last year has been seen as a major step forward in, in the right direction. And uh, I think in terms of people who are invested in elephants, it can't happen fast enough. Maybe this is out of your area of expertise again, but, but what, what was the rationale for the Chinese? Yeah, it, I mean, it, it, it's sort of opaque, you know, in terms of being able to access what the what those internal conversations actually were like. I know they've been under an enormous amount of pressure from conservation community um, internationally. There's been a lot of argument about the importance of that. Um, and I think as the current state of the population gets framed more and more in terms of talking about extinction, oh, they could be extinct in our lifetime, this sort of thing. That's um, an awful lot of pressure for a, a single country to bear. And so, you know, whether or not it's it's fair to lay it entirely at the feet of the Chinese, I think is a, a really important question to ask. And I think it probably isn't um, because, you know, certainly the ivory trade isn't new. This is something that's been going on for hundreds of years. And, you know, uh, the U.S. certainly historically bought more than our share. If we think about uh, billiard balls and piano keys historically, there are... I know this so well. I, I, I lived before I came here in a town called Deep River, partway up the Connecticut River in Connecticut. I was going to say Ivoryton, Connecticut. Ivoryton <laughs> is right there. And, yep. and that town yeah. was built on piano keys. Yeah, yeah. Um... So we hear you're giving a talk in Olympia next week. This is yes. Are we breaking from our topic here? What, what what's coming up with that? No. So uh, so we are actually um, my partner and I who both we both do research on um, human wildlife conflict and have worked in Botswana for a long time, and we're going to be talking uh, a little bit about the both the ivory trade and uh, some of the ways in which elephants are perceived differently by, by different people. We sort of, we've been uh, talking a bit about a, a sort of a metaphor of, uh, you know, the same elephant could appear to be an entirely different creature to different people. So we, we talk often about the conservationist's elephant is not the politician's elephant, is not the farmer's elephant. And what does that actually mean? Uh, we tend to, to only see, uh, we tend to only see the one. <laughs> from where we often stand in the West with a view of protecting wilderness and uh, trying to stave off environmental crisis and these sorts of things. And, and I say this not to, not to minimize the notion that there is a problem. There certainly is. Um, but also to say that meaningful solutions have to come from a place in which we understand that there are multiple views and experiences and that uh, elephants are seen and understood quite differently. So we are gonna talk a little bit about that uh, in light of, and particularly in, in light of the international ivory trade and global advocacy efforts to um, ban or at the very least reduce that as much as possible. We'll look forward to hearing more about that. Yeah, thanks. I, I, despite the ban, I don't think this is something that's going away anytime soon. Well, thank you so very much for, for joining us this afternoon. Thank you, Chuck. What We Do is brought to you by University of Puget Sound. Join us next Wednesday for another story about what we do at Puget Sound. And if you liked this podcast, rate us on iTunes.